Good morning, loved ones. I am uh, so happy to be with you today for our digital worship. I pray that wherever you are today, that you feel the Lord's presence with you uh, and that his word uh, lifts you up, gives you uh, courage and encouragement for the day ahead of you and for the week ahead. Uh, and I pray that you just feel rejuvenated today and lifted up and that you can come out of this time knowing that you have been in the presence of the Lord. Uh, if you would, join with me in a time of prayer and then we'll jump right into our lesson for today. Father God, Lord, I thank you so much for the time to come before you in a time of worship and a time of holy awe and reverence of you, Lord, to, to just be in your presence, Lord, to come before you with praises and rejoicing uh, and to hear your word proclaimed. Lord, I pray that you just allow us to focus on you during this time. Lord, I pray that you will just give us ears that are eager for your word, Lord, and hearts that are ready to hide your word within, Lord, so that we can meditate them, uh, meditate upon them uh, day and night. Lord, I pray that you be with us now. I pray that our worship be glorifying and honoring to you, that your name be praised and proclaimed. And Lord, I pray that you will just... Uh, I, make us ready uh, to experience this time with you. Lord, we pray this in the name of Christ, amen. Thank you for that, loved ones. And so last week, we looked at Hebrews chapter eight and we discussed several things. We talked about how Christ is the superior high priest because he serves in the true heavenly temple. And we talked about how the earthly tabernacle uh, is just a sketch of the true heavenly one. And we also discussed the new covenant and how it relates to the old covenant. And we looked at how the new covenant addressed the issue of our sinful hearts. And we came to realize that our sinful nature proved to be the major flaw of the old covenant. Today, we're going to start in chapter 9, and as we go through this chapter, uh, we're going to see where the author continues to build a case against the Old Covenant, and where the author also continues to build a case for the superiority and the supremacy of the New Covenant, as well as a case for the perfect nature of Christ's sacrifice for us. And so today we're going to focus on Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 10, and we're going to see where the author continues this argument against the Old Covenant, and where the author does so by examining the earthly tabernacle. We're going to look at the structure of the tabernacle, and we're also going to look at the worship requirements of the Old Covenant. And today we're really going to focus on three things. We're going to look at the worship regulations of the Old Covenant. We're going to see how those regulations reveal to us our separation from God. And we're also going to discuss how those worship regulations were never designed and were never enough to fix us. And all of these things together really help us to see and understand why we needed a better way, why we need a new covenant, why we need a better high priest and a better sacrifice, and why we need God to change us. So if you would, 
Join with me in Hebrews chapter 9, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 10. Hebrews 9, verses 1 through 10. And it says this, Now the first covenant, in fact, had regulations for worship and its earthly sanctuary. For a tent was prepared, the outer one, which contained the lampstand, the table, and the presentation of the loaves. This is called the holy place. And after the second curtain there was a tent called the Holy of Holies. It contained the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant entirely covered with gold. In this Ark were the golden urn containing the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. And above the Ark were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Now is not the time to speak of these things in detail. So with these things prepared like this, the priests enter continually into the outer tent as they perform their duties. But only the high priest enters once a year into the inner tent, and not without blood that he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is making it clear that the way into the holy place had not yet appeared as long as this old tabernacle was standing. This was a symbol for the time then present, when gifts and sacrifices were offered that could not perfect the conscience of the worshiper. They served only for matters of food and drink and various ritual washings. They were external regulations imposed until the new order came. So here at the outset of chapter 9, the author of Hebrews really dives into a great amount of detail about the Old Covenant. And the author focuses attention specifically on the way that the Hebrews had been instructed to worship. And this ties back into the author's comments that we saw last week about the earthly tabernacle being a sketch and a shadow of the heavenly one. And so today the author is saying, what can we learn from this sketch? How does the earthly tabernacle reveal to us and help us better understand God? And first we see that God is a God of order. He gave Israel specific rules and regulations about how they were to approach worship. He gave them specific measurements and dimensions for constructing the tabernacle, which was the physical representation of God's presence with Israel. And then God commanded Israel to fill the tabernacle with the tools of worship that he commanded them to use. Lampstands, altars, tables, and all of these things were to be covered in gold to show that they were not ordinary tools. They were not to be used for common things. Uh, being covered in gold showed that these tools had been set apart by God to do his work. And the author tells us that the inside of the tabernacle was called the holy place. And within the holy place, God commanded Israel to put up a curtain, to put up a veil that would separate a portion of the holy place from an even more sacred space. It would separate the holy place from the holy of holies, or in some places it's called the holiest place. And we've discussed the veil and the holy of holies a number of times as we've been going through Hebrews, and within the holy of holies was the Ark of the Covenant. 
Now, we remember that the Ark of the Covenant was this large ceremonial box that was adorned with gold, and it represented God's throne. The Ark of the Covenant was quite literally the footstool that would be placed at God's throne. And the Ark symbolized God's presence. It showed his presence with his people. And whenever God would command Israel to uh, pick up camp and move to a new destination during their trek through the wilderness, the Levites, the priests, would pick up the Ark of the Covenant on long poles, and they would carry the Ark on their shoulders, just in the same way that slaves in ancient times would carry their king from place to place. And the author goes on to remind us that within the Ark of the Covenant were signs and symbols of the many miracles that God had performed for Israel. Within the Ark of the Covenant were the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments that were given to Moses. There was a jar of the manna that God provided for Israel in the desert. And according to the author of Hebrews, even Aaron's rod that miraculously uh, blossomed with awesome, with almond blossoms, excuse me, was contained within the, the Ark of the Covenant. And because the Ark represented God's throne, and because the Ark resided within the Holy of Holies, that space was the most sacred space in all the earth. The Holy of Holies was the place where God's domain overlapped with creation. And we are reminded of this fact in a most interesting way. We know that on the veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place and on the Ark of the Covenant itself were depictions of cherubim. And this might seem like a minor detail. This might seem like something that's not too important, but this is significant. So what's the big deal about cherubim? Well, the first thing I need you to do is this. I need you to get the image that you have of cherubim in your head. I need you to forget that and remove it from your head entirely. Cherubim are not little babies with angel wings. Cherubim are, in fact, very frightening, very nightmarish, very terrifying creatures. They are huge. They have six wings. They sometimes have the faces of people and the bodies of animals or the faces of animals and the bodies of people. They are terrifying creatures. And the cherubim have to be frightening because they are the ones who guard the boundary between God's domain and our domain. The cherubim guard the line between the holy and the secular, and they make sure that nothing from the secular gets into the holy. The cherubim are the ones who guard God's throne in heaven. And when God had to throw Adam and Eve out of Eden, who did he station on the boundary between the world and Eden? It was the cherubim. And God put them there for humanity's protection. He put them there to guard Eden 
so that we would not carelessly wander back into God's holy domain while we were still in our sinful states and be destroyed completely by his holy presence. And so all of this imagery within the tabernacle, the golden fixtures, the veil of separation, the cherubim that were everywhere. All of this reminded the Israelites and the Israelite priests that they were approaching God's presence, that they were on the threshold of God's domain, and that they had better act accordingly and appropriately. So in verses 1 through 5, the author reminded us of why we need these Old Covenant worship regulations, that it was for our safety that they were given to us. Uh, these regulations were given to the people of God so that they might not do anything inappropriate in their worship. In verses 6 through 8, the author begins focusing a little more intensely on the people who did the heavy lifting, so to speak, of the religious system. The author starts focusing on the priest, and the author tells us that the priest would go each and every day inside the tent into the holy place to do their priestly duties. They would go and make sure that incense was burning. They would make sure that the lamps and the lampstand were continuously burning. They would do other such daily routines. And again, the author reminds us that the high priest was the only one who was permitted to go into the Holy of Holies, and that the high priest could only do so on one day out of the year. That no one Nobody, not even the high priest, was allowed to enter God's presence on their own volition. No one could approach God outside of the way that God had prescribed. And even when the high priest was able to go into God's presence, when he was able to go into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, he had to go in there with the blood of a sacrificed animal. We have to remember that God is absolutely and perfectly holy and that he cannot be in the presence of anything that is sinful. God's mere presence will completely destroy sinful beings. And so for the high priest to be able to enter into God's presence meant that something had to die. There had to be blood that would cover and atone for the high priest's sins so that he could go and perform his duty. And so, before the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies, he would first have to take an animal and sacrifice it and offer it up as a sacrifice to God. And its blood would cover the uh, sins of the high priest and would enable him to go into God's presence and to perform the work of atonement for the people's sins. And the author is telling us all of this background information so that we can understand a very important point, that under the Old Covenant, there was no direct access to God. We could not approach God on our own. And the author of Hebrews goes on to say that the Holy Spirit was using the tabernacle as a parable, as an example to prove the, this point. 
And as long as the old tabernacle stood, as long as the old covenant was valid, there would never be any way for us to go to God. As long as the tabernacle stood, there would always be a separation. There would always be a veil. There would always be a divide between God and us. And this divide would stay there. We would be separated from God until a better way came, until a new covenant was enacted, until we were changed and enabled by God to come before him. And so the regulations of the first covenant reveal to us that there is a vast separation between us and God. And it shows us why we so desperately needed a new covenant and a new mediator. And so far today, we've looked at the regulations of the first covenant, and we looked at how they were necessary, how they protected us and kept us safe while we were in the range of God's domain. And we looked at these regulations, and we have seen how they revealed to us our separation spiritually from God. But then in verses 9 and 10, the author drops a bombshell on us. The author hits us with the most uncomfortable truth of the Old Covenant. And that truth is this, that though these regulations were necessary, and though these regulations reveal to us our true standing before God, these regulations do nothing in themselves to save us. The laws, the regulations, the sacrifices, the offerings, none of these things could save the people. None of these things could do, as the author says, perfect the conscience of the worshiper. These regulations could do nothing for our nature, nothing for our hearts, nothing for our conscience, because the regulations of the law didn't address these Things. The law dealt with outward things, what you can eat and what you're not allowed to eat, how to wash yourself, how to be ceremonially and ritually and outwardly clean. But these external regulations do nothing to clean us on the inside. They do nothing for our hearts and for our souls. And this shortcoming shows us why we need the new and better covenant. The law showed us how much we need God and how much we need his grace. And the law only worked as long as people trusted in God for their hope and salvation. But the law itself was never designed to be the thing in which people put their hope for salvation. And slowly, over time, Israel stopped keeping the law out of honor for God and out of an obligation to show the world that they have agreed to be God's people. They stopped keeping the law to show how much they trusted in God and in his grace. And over time, Israel began keeping the law rigidly and mechanically and ritualistically 
because they had stopped trusting in God's grace and they had started trusting in their ability to be self-righteous. They trusted in the law for salvation instead of trusting in the God who gave them the law. And with their zealous desire to keep the law to perfection, many of the Hebrews began abusing the law and misusing the law and turning the law into a god and an idol of its own. And they did this without even realizing that the way in which they were keeping the law undermined and violated the law itself. Yes, the people who kept the law in this manner, yes, they would have appeared righteous. They would have been ceremonially clean. They would have been outwardly clean. But on the inside, they would have been just as lost and just as dead as even the most vile sinner. And this is exactly what Christ was talking about when in Matthew 23, verses 27 to 28, Christ says this, Woe to you, Pharisees and scribes! Woe to you, hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which appear beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and every impurity. In the same way, you seem and appear righteous to people, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Though the law was given by God, it was not designed to give salvation. And those who trusted in the law instead of trusting in God were just as lost and just as sinful as the sinners and the idolaters that they so looked down upon and so despised. So where do we fit into all of this? The new covenant is here now. We follow Christ. So what does this mean for us? Well, first and foremost, because of Christ, that separation between God and us has been eradicated. Christ has done away with the divide. He has done away with the veil of separation that prevented us from approaching God. He passed through the heavens. He went behind the veil, and now Christ sits today in heaven upon his throne. And those who put their hope and faith for salvation in him have unlimited access to the Father. Now, because of Christ, we don't need a priest to go to God for us. Because of Christ, we don't need to sacrifice an animal to be able to approach God. Because of Christ and the shedding of his blood, we can go to God at any time. We can boldly approach the Father's throne of mercy and grace. And when we do go to God, when we do go to his throne, God no longer sees a vile sinner who is worthy of condemnation and punishment. Because of Christ, 
God now sees a child of his who has been bought and redeemed by the blood of Christ and whose sins he will remember no more. You see, Christ enabled us to go to the Father because Christ fixed in us what was most broken. He fixed in us what the law could not. He fixed our sinful hearts and he made perfect our conscience and he gave us his righteousness so that we can draw near to God and approach the Father. So the question for us today, loved ones, is this. Are we trusting in Christ and in the sacrifice that he made for us? Are we putting our trust and our hope and our faith and our confidence for salvation in him and in him alone? Or are we making the same mistake? That Israel made? Are we trusting in our ability to be good and to do good works and to try to appease God? Are we being self-righteous? Are we trying to keep a list of laws that we have concocted for ourselves without realizing that our good works and our deeds are meaningless without Christ? Are we putting our faith and our trust in things other than Christ and his blood and his righteousness. Because I need you to understand something very, very important, loved ones. If you are trusting in anything other than Christ, and it doesn't matter what it is, if you are trusting in anything other than Christ, that is idolatry. And that is having another God instead of God. And that is completely contradictory to our call to be the people of God. Idolatry is just as much a dangerous sin today as it was in the ancient days of Israel. And so, loved ones, if you are trusting in something other than God. If, if you are putting your hope and trust in something other than Christ, then I pray you repent of that sin of idolatry. I pray that you put your idols and your false gods away. And I pray that you put your hope and your faith and your confidence and your trust entirely in Christ and entirely in Christ alone. Loved ones, would you pray with me? Father, Lord, we thank you so much for the gift of your Son. We thank you so much for the salvation that is found in him and only in him. Lord, I pray that you move in our hearts, Lord, that you seek, uh, search out the dark recesses of our hearts, Lord, and allow us to see the things that we are holding on to, the things that we are trying to do, the things that we are putting our hope and our confidence in other than Christ, Lord. 
Allow us to see plainly and clearly the idols that we have concocted for ourselves. Even if those idols were concocted uh, with good intentions, Lord, even if our intentions were to follow you more closely, Lord, I pray that you allow us to see that these things are in many ways actually leading us away from you, that they are allowing us to try to earn our salvation in our own strength and our own power instead of trusting in your Son, Lord. Lord, I pray that you forgive us of these sins. Lord, I pray that you move in us and that you bring us back to you, Lord, and that you give us a renewed spirit, Lord, to follow you more closely, Lord, to trust you more deeply and to put the entirety of our faith in you. Lord, thank you for your love and your mercy. Thank you, Lord, that the separation between us and you has been done away with by Christ. And Lord, allow us to draw to you more closely through our blessed Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray this in his name. Amen.